Uh, Peter Bergen, our speaker today, uh, is a well-known and very respected uh, print and, and television journalist. He currently is the director of the National Security Studies Program at the New America Foundation here in town, a research fellow at New York University's Center on Law and Security, and CNN's National Security Analyst. In uh, 2008, he was an adjunct lecturer at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, and he has also been an adjunct professor here at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins. He has had uh, many uh, contributions to the field of public knowledge uh, on Osama bin Laden, on Al-Qaeda, and on the Al-Qaeda movement. Uh, in 1997, as a producer for CNN, he produced the, bin Laden, the first television interview of bin Laden and the first time he declared war on the West. Peter Bergen was part of that uh, interview and actually did interview uh, bin Laden. He has written a number of books on the subject under discussion today. I might say his most recent is Manhunt, uh, which we have here. Uh, to finish on Peter, uh, this is his latest book. Uh, the other books he's done, The Longest War, uh, Osama bin Laden, I Knew, Holy War Inside the Secret World of bin Laden, have been all, virtually all New York Times bestsellers. They have been recognized and put in for awards, and in most cases, a, a, a TV documentary has been made of them. He's currently, by the way, a member of the National Security Preparedness Group, which is a successor to the 9-11 Commission. So at this time, and considering the nature of the subject, we could not have a better speaker. Please help me welcome Peter Bergen. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. Be. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations in the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. Shame on you. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, that didn't happen. And here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? You didn't know this kid, okay? We did it. They're looking for help. We call BS. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the when businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved. And their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public, to public Access, Access America. America.
Thank you, Peter Ernest, for the introduction. Thank you to the Spy Museum uh, for this invitation. Thank you all for coming today. So, you know, it's interesting that the second in the series of these talks is how the Mossad captured Eichmann, uh, because as I was <clears throat> thinking about the hunt for bin Laden before he was captured, I started read Neil Bascom's very good book on, on the hunt for Eichmann. And I think one of the takeaways from that book is that, you know, you can hide, but as human beings, you're likely to make a mistake, um, which will eventually lead to your being found. And that's not always the case. After all, Mengele, uh, the angel of death at Auschwitz, uh, probably died in Rio de Janeiro in a drowning accident in 1970, I believe. He'd done a pretty good job of disappearing. As you know, he lived in Argentina um, for many, many years. But what gave him away was his, as I recall, his, his son uh, was sort of boasting to his girlfriend that his dad was sort of an important Nazi, and she communicated this to her father, who then called a friend of his who was a judge in Germany who had an interest in hunting down Nazi war criminals. Somehow Mossad got uh, hold of this information and went into Buenos Aires and, and as you know, kidnapped uh, Eichmann and brought him to Jerusalem to stand trial in 1962. So the reason I mention all that is in the context of the hunt for bin Laden, <coughs> People at the agency started looking at other manhunts for, you know, because they basically they, they didn't have any clues about where bin Laden was. So they were looking at sort of broad lessons of other manhunts, and Eichmann's certainly was one of the manhunts that they, they examined. And, I, you know, one of the big lessons here is that, you know, family may be the key to finding a fugitive. Often fugitives don't take their families with them. In Eichmann's case, he did. And in bin Laden's case, he took three wives and a dozen kids and grandkids, which is not a sort of typical uh, kind of thing that a fugitive would take with him. So, you know, long before bin Laden was captured, I was interested in the hunt for bin Laden. I was very aware that the hunt had basically, it, you know, had basically, there were no leads. I mean, I, in 2003, I talked to people involved in the hunt for bin Laden. And they said various versions of, you know, the trail has run cold, we've hit a brick wall, we just don't have anything. And I was increasingly convinced over time that that story remained true. In fact, in 2010, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post basically saying the lead, you know, the hunt for bin Laden has, you know, it's going nowhere. Well, unbeknownst to me, and, and only known to a very few people at the CIA and the White House, the hunt for bin Laden had actually sort of begun to pick up in August of 2010. And of course, we all know the outcome of the hunt. And when I started to sit down to write my book about the hunt, A, I had rather limited time uh, to write it in and report it, uh, which actually was good because I think it kind of gives an energy to the whole book because yeah, I didn't have the luxury of saying, hey, can I take another year, which I've done in past books. Um, I sat down on May 2nd or May 3rd and thought, you know, what are the big ideas that need to be communicated in this book? What are the big questions that people would want to have the answers to? <clears throat> and I thought there were five or six sort of themes that needed to be addressed. You know, obviously, what was bin Laden doing after 9-11 was kind of a big theme. And of course, much of that was hard to sort of disentangle. How is Al-Qaeda doing uh, after 9-11? Uh, and to what extent was bin Laden involved in directing them. The Agatha Christie story at the CIA about how bin Laden was found 
and as a sort of sub-part of that, the extent to which coercive interrogations were or were not useful in the hunt for bin Laden, uh, coercive interrogations by the CIA. The evolution of Joint Special Operations Command, uh, the Special Forces, essentially Delta Force, U.S. Navy SEALs, uh, the Helicopter uh, Special Operations um, Army Helicopter Regiment, um, and because it's not at all clear that in 2002 that the operation could have gone as relatively smoothly as it did with the special operations community at that time. The evolving nature of the U.S.-Pakistan relationship, because as you will recall, U.S.-Pakistan relations in the time period that the, <clears throat> the raid on Abdabad happened were at an all-time low. Um, and also, obviously, you know, President Obama as a decision maker, because at the end of the day, he made the decision. And so, I mean, I begin the book, uh, you know, there's a problem trying to tell a story that everybody knows the end of. <laughs> and so I was trying to think, how do I begin the book in a way that might sort of draw people in and be a little unexpected? And so I begin the book with what was Bin Laden, what was Bin Laden's life in, like in Abdabad in the five and a half years he was living there? What was his life uh, like on the run as the world's most wanted man? And the picture that you develop, and I was able to actually get inside the compound where Bin Laden lived before, I, I didn't know it was going to happen. Two weeks later, the Pakistanis demolished it. I was the first outside observer to, to get in to look at it. The, the picture is, you know, Bin Laden has always been a very um, careful with money. Uh, like, a, like a lot of, not, well, like some children of very rich families, he's always been pretty careful with money. Um, but he was also running out of money during this time period. So money was tight. I examined the gas and electricity bills for this compound. They were paying maybe $50 a month uh, in a compound that has 24 people in a place that is quite cold in the winter and quite hot in the summer. There was no air conditioning. There was very rudimentary heating. Bin Laden's three wives, uh, the oldest wife, Korea, who's from Saudi Arabia, has a PhD, she was uh, 62 at the time of the, uh, in 2011. She had recently done a fairly extraordinary thing. She'd been living in exile in Iran. In 2010, she traveled from Tehran through Waziristan to Abdabad to rejoin her husband, who she hadn't seen in nine years. Uh, that's a 1,500-mile journey across some of the most, most difficult terrain in the world. Uh, she's described as a pretty tough uh, customer. The other wife was the 54-year-old, also Saudi PhD, um, Bin Laden's uh, third wife. Uh, she was also living in this compound. And then he was young, his youngest wife, the Yemeni, who was 29 at the time, uh, Amal is her name. She had married Bin Laden when, he was, when she was 17, and he was, I believe, 44. And he had described her as a... Um, to his other wives as a you know, highly educated 30-year-old, while well, she turned out to be a sort of uneducated 17-year-old, uh, and there was a little bit of tension at the beginning. But at the, in the house, they all lived in some sort of you know, relatively harmonious life, because all the wives had signed up for two things that most people ne wouldn't necessarily sign up for. One, they all signed up for a life married to a jihadi war hero. That was their motivation. The oldest wives married bin Laden 
in the mid-80s when he was already developing the reputation as a war hero fighting the Soviets. And the youngest wife, Mary Bin Laden, um, a couple of years before the 9-11 attacks when he was developing a reputation as a sort of global jihadist. And that was one of the key motivations they had for marrying him. Miss an episode of Public Access America? Download the SoundCloud app now on your Android or iPhone device to catch up. Also, all these wives were second, third, fourth, fifth wives. Uh, so they all went into the marriage knowing it was a polygamous arrangement. And in fact, not only knowing it was a polygamous arrangement, but believing that this is sanctioned and, and desirable uh, according to God. So they lived in relative harmony. They were growing their own crops in the house, in, in, the, in the compound garden. They were raising cattle for milk. They were raising chickens for eggs. They were raising, they had bees to make honey. It was a kind of, um, you know, pretty self-contained, which of course had a security aspect to it because they didn't have to go out that much uh, to get things. Uh, you know, occasional trips to the doctors when the kids got ill. Um, and they were buying some household products. I noticed, for instance, in Bin Laden's bedroom that um, he had a just-for-men hair dye, Pakistani version. Uh, so he, they were, and he was dyeing his beard, and he was now in 54 and, 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 and quite vain about his public appearances. And so they were occasionally going out to buy things, but they were mostly able to live in this compound without going out. And of course, Bin Laden never, it not, didn't, it's not only that he didn't leave the compound, he very rarely left the second and third floor of the main house. He would do occasionally, he would take a walk in the garden, but even then it was under a tarpaulin that prevented uh, satellites from getting a clear picture of him. So he was being very careful. And he built the house in such a way in 2005 that it was designed to prevent easy surveillance from almost any angle. Uh, Bin Laden lived on the third floor. He had basically his bedroom with his youngest wife, a tiny toilet about the size of this lectern. Uh, it was one of those sort of squat toilets, so not, nothing very you know, sophisticated. And then a, a small kitchen. Um, and then next to that was his study. And he had uh, windows in the study which gave onto a terrace, very small. Uh, but the terrace had seven-foot walls, so you could not see in at all. You also, by the way, couldn't see out very well, which on the night of the raid would prove a problem for bin Laden. And so he created this sort of prison of his own making. Uh, it was designed to make sure that people didn't know he, he was there, and it was pretty successful for some period of time. His days were spent, um, his, his uh, bodyguards, the courier, uh, you know, would print up stuff off the internet, Bin Laden would spend many of his days writing, in one case, a 46-page memo to his chief of staff in Al-Qaeda. Um, he would uh, be reading, ironically, a, a, a number of English books. One of them, a book that he actually publicly said he really enjoyed, was written by Mike Scheuer, who, of course, ran the Bin Laden unit at CIA. And uh, Mike Scheuer wrote a book called Imperial Hubris with this sort of basic premise that the Bush administration was... Well, I think the title speaks for itself, and too pro-Israel, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Bin Laden was reading these kinds of books in English. He was composing these lengthy memos to Al-Qaeda. He was lecturing his family on religious matters. Um, he um, was watching Al Jazeera. We, we know from those videotapes, he was watching old sort of video of himself on Al Jazeera. Um, and, you know, it was a confining uh, existence. On the other hand, for the world's most wanted man, it was not a bad life. And he was with his three wives and a dozen kids and grandkids. 
And um, I don't think that he ever expected that he would be found. Which brings us to the question of how was he found, <clears throat> which is a long story. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, you and nobody, nobody gonna hit as hard as fight. Ask not yes, what we can. your country can do for you. I wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad to prove to everyone that I what? Public Access America. Yes, we can. On SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and now Facebook. Public Access Public America. Access America. History, in the, history in the making. 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 History in history the making. History in the making. Public Access America is waiting for you on the Stitcher Smart Radio app. Download the app for free and subscribe to Public Access America to get more episodes like this in your feed every day.